The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in November 2006. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. Thank you. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We say welcome to Sheldon Harnick. Officially, welcome, Sheldon. (laughs) Thank you. Let me just uh, take a few seconds to go through a few vital statistics. A few shows like Fiddler on the Roof, Tenderloin, She Loves Me, The Rothschilds, The Apple Tree, and many, many others, all with lyrics by Sheldon Harnick. And in these instances, uh, the music by Jerry Bach. Other shows he's worked on include shows like Rex, for example, and uh, Baker Street, and a show that is currently running in New Jersey at uh, Paper Mill Playhouse, a one Wonderful Life, based on that wonderfully known motion picture, the one that starred Jimmy Stewart. That's right. That We had our first preview last night out at the Paper Mill Playhouse. Music for that is by Joe Raposo, who used to be the associate music director of Sesame Street. Uh, at any rate, we had our first preview last night, and I was very relieved that the audience gave a standing ovation at the end, which was lovely. Well, that's congratulatory right there. <laughs> what, 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 is, what is the, well, we know the story. How do you set that to music? Um, carefully, by <laughs> by trying to uh, look for the emotional core of every scene and then to explore that musically. As a matter of fact, when I started to make the adaptation, I realized right off the bat the first two scenes in the film I thought I can't use. The first one is a boy who is sliding across the ice and goes into a, a little hole. The ice breaks, and he almost drowns. And I thought, well, I don't think we can do that on stage. Then the next scene, which to me is the most moving scene in the film, and I believe was written by Clifford Odets, is where the young George Bailey, 15 years old, sees the druggist preparing a prescription which he, the boy knows is poisonous, and he will not deliver it. And then the druggist begins to hit him, you know, and it turns out that the druggist has lost his son. He doesn't know what he's doing. Anyway, that was a wonderful scene, and I thought, there's no way I can set this to music without making an opera out of the piece. There's no song here. So, And just to put the scene in, then I'll be doing the film, and I don't want to do that. So I had to skip everything at the beginning and find my own way to start, which was uh, by taking the voices of the angels, the two angels that are speaking, and putting them on stage and keeping them on stage pretty much throughout the show. They reappear from time to time to orient the audience as to what's happening. Now, that's a show that you've been working on and has had a number of productions on and off over the years. Uh, Rogers and Hammerstein licenses it, and we find that people consider it a seasonal show. So we get about a dozen productions at uh, this time of year, uh, every year. Well, when the, uh, now, Joe Raposo passed away a number of years ago. When did you actually write the show? We wrote the show about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Joe, I think, died around... 92-something. All I remember is he was 52 years old. He was just much too young. Uh, I think it was a little, maybe 20 years ago. Well, talking about Wonderful Life, which is having life again, certainly at Paper Mill and at theaters around the country, as you say, at this time of year, you could probably spend all of your time now just going and seeing productions of your shows, given how much they're produced. And certainly we also have here in New York, in rehearsal as we speak, the new production of The Apple Tree. How involved are you in these revivals of your shows, and in particular with with Apple Tree? Well, uh, it depends. With Apple Tree, uh, when it was done at Encores last year, uh, I wasn't involved at all. Uh, they've done a couple of my shows at Encores, and usually I find, in fact, invariably, I find the people that get to do them are so uh, skillful that there's no need for me to come in I, with casting or anything. And uh, in particular with Apple Tree, when I knew that the director was Gary Griffin, I thought, just leave leave it alone. He knows what he's doing. And Kristen Chinowit. So I didn't do anything. But now, uh, to my surprise, we've done some rewrites on uh, the apple tree. Gary, now that he has, the, uh, when he did the encores, of course, that is thrown together so quickly. There's no time to do anything but get it on its feet and bring up the curtain. Now he's had time to study it, and Gary's the kind of director who probes so that every time I've dropped into rehearsal, he says, Sheldon, you know this line here? You know, I think this could be improved. And I look at it, and I think, Darn it, he's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's been those. Then there was another 
Uh, major, minor rewrite. I think you'll know what I mean when I explain it. Jules Pfeiffer, who wrote the cartoon book that became our Passionella, our third act, our third story. Jules saw the encore production and Kristen Chenoweth, and he loved it and he adored her. But he said the the uh, story was written and published some 40 years ago. And over the years, because of the way we've written it, the edge the satire that he was after has softened, and he wanted to try and restore that edge. So he gave me about four pages of new material, and uh, he said, I don't, I don't mean for this material to be just taken and used literally. He's, this is just to make you think, to see what I was trying to accomplish. So I looked at it and realized that really what Passionella is about, it's not a satire or a burlesque of Marilyn Monroe. It's a satire of an approach to realism that uh, certain movies take, which goes way beyond realism and becomes something that's unreal. Uh, and so I took Jules's pages and I tweaked them, rewrote them, edited them, cut them, showed them to Jerry Bach, who's my collaborator, and uh, Jerry liked it. So then we sent it to Jules, and he said, this is better. This is wonderful. So now we're, it's like an opening uh, of a new show in that one little section where we have to see how that plays before an audience. Well, and it's an interesting situation in that, unlike many of your shows with Jerry Bach, the two of you wrote the book as well for, for Apple Tree primarily? Well, that was an interesting uh, adventure. The original book writer was a very skillful, clever writer named Jerome Coopersmith. And the first piece that we were trying to musicalize was based on the Mark Twain, The Diaries of Adam and Eve, which are wonderful, wonderful stories. So Jerry had written a very clever script, and Jer that's Jerry Coopersmith. Jerry Bach and I could not find the songs. And one day our producer, Stuart Ostro, called us into his office, and he said, you know what I think the problem is? A one-act musical is too small a form to have both a book writer and a lyricist. So he said, Sheldon, I want you to be both the book writer and the lyricist. And Cooper Smith very generously said, maybe he's right. I will step aside. Not financially, of course, but I will step <laughs> aside. And uh, I'll be there to help. So uh, I thought, well, Jerry and I will do this together. And the way it worked was that I took Jerome Cooper Smith's script and with the freedom to change it, and the changes weren't that extensive. They were just enough to allow me to find, ah, now I see where the song comes. And then I would use Jerry as my sounding board, and he had wonderful editorial suggestions. And so between the two of us, we did that. Well, it's interesting because here Jerome Coopersmith is adapting work that's been written by somebody else, yes. Mark Twain or, or Jules Pfeiffer or whomever, and then you're adapting Jerome <laughs> right. Coopersmith. Right. <laughs> well, just to make it more confusing, and of course it probably was at this same point or just after this that Jules Pfeiffer branched into writing screenplays and stage plays. So when the, you look yes. at it 40 years later, Jules Pfeiffer is, is you know, an experienced playwright at this point, That's to right. say the least. Yes. So we the adaptation of Passionella uh, was was very close to what was in the cartoon book. We varied, we, we veered away from it from time to time. And the middle piece, based on the story of the Lady of the Tiger, that really was a, a kind of a scenario that Jerome Cooper Smith gave me, because Jerry Bach and I knew we wanted to make it like a little jazz opera. Uh, so he gave us a scenario, and then I wrote from that. And uh, Jerry gets credit, Jer Jerome Cooper Smith gets credit as additional material, but in truth, his contribution was greater than that. As we talk about this, you mentioned your producer, Stuart Ostro. The, the idea of three one-acts as a musical is not something we've seen very often on Broadway over the years. What was what was the impetus for this approach to, well, to an it was, evening? It was a wonderful coincidence. The first half of the coincidence was that Jerry Bach had been reading a lot of short stories. And suddenly the light bulb went on, and he called me and said, Hey, you know something? Might be interesting to do an evening of just short musicals based on these short stories. That same week, I had a call from Stuart Astro. And Stuart said, you know, I've been thinking, when shows fail, usually it's because they have second act problems. So what if we don't do the second act? What if we just do the first act? And I thought, oh, 
this is this uh, just dovetails with what Jerry Bach just told me. So I I told Stuart, and uh, the three of us got together and decided that's what we would do: an evening of one act musicals, of three first acts, three first which, acts, which yes. is kind of a playwright's dream because there's no second act uh, problems in any, <laughs> any of these, these shows. Right, <laughs> there is no but, second act, and if you're lucky, there's no first act problems. <laughs> that's true too. Well, you, you mentioned that it was done at Encores here in New York at City Center, and Encores is known for very wonderful productions, but very sparse, basically no scenery and limited costuming and all that. And with the orchestra on stage. With the orchestra on stage, yeah. And there have been a couple uh, shows that have moved from uh, Encores, like Chicago and like uh, Wonderful Town, have moved to Broadway and have kept some of the same elements. In fact, Chicago is pretty much identical uh, to what was done at Encores. Other than the the new Jules Pfeiffer material in in the third uh, in the Passionella sequence, what other changes, if any, have been made to now the new Broadway version? Kristen Chenoweth has been kept. There've been some cast right. changes, and the others were not available. So we instead of Michael Cer- Cerverus and uh, if I'm pronouncing that right, right. and Malcolm Getz, we have two wonderful performers, Brian Darcy James and Mark Kudish, and they're they're both terrific in the roles, but. I was surprised because I spoke to Gary Griffin and I said, so are we going to do the Ankars production with the orchestra? Not not a 28-piece orchestra. I knew they couldn't afford that. But I said, will we have the orchestra on stage? He said, no. Now we're going to do it like a real Broadway show. Uh, it's at a theater that has a, a, a peculiar problem with regard to the orchestra. The orchestra split into two halves, and they're in the boxes on either side of the stage. Well, it, it's Studio 54. Studio 54. But apparently uh, the shows that have have uh, been there before, they found out how to work with that, so that maybe is no real problem. Uh, again, because it's encores and because Kristen can only give us, I think, uh, a limited time. She has television and film commitments, and because The Roundabout has other shows that will be coming into that theater, it'll be a 15-week run, which I'm delighted Mm -hmm. with. Um, But they can't go overboard and make it a very lavish show. So uh, scenery will be very selective. But what I've seen of it is is quite handsome and and, uh, quite imaginative. So it'll be more than Encores, but less than the original production in 1966? Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh, And we will have, uh, at first... Todd Hames uh, had budgeted for only 13 instruments, which is considerably less than, the, I think it was 28, in Eddie Sauter's glorious arrangements. And I thought, oh, my God, that's going to be uh, kind of pitiful. And then Jonathan Tunick, who was uh, going to adapt the orchestrations, called me desperately, and he said, please call Todd Hames and plead with him for a 14th instrument, because I need chords. Hmm. You know, I have to have three brass. I have to have three reeds. I have to make chords. Um, He also said, and if you can get a 15th instrument... We need a French horn for the uh, the Adam and Eve. It's uh, there's nothing that can replace a French horn, and no synthetic instruments. So uh, Jerry Bach and I and Rob Fisher and Gary Griffith, everybody pleaded with. Todd, and somehow he came up with the money, and we have our 15. Well, well, and Todd is the artistic director of Roundabout. Yes. And he's the guy that controls the budget. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, and also Gary had pointed out, each of the three pieces is quite different in tone. And consequently, when Eddie Sauter did the orchestrations, the orchestrations are quite different for each piece. They, they are tailor-made for each piece, and that's why we need... Uh, the variety that that 15 instruments rather than 13 will give us. Let me just for the record say the previews on the Apple Tree at Studio 54 start on uh, November 28th. The show opens on December 14th at Studio 54 here in New York. Well, as we talk about the creation of Apple Tree, I think it would be a great opportunity if you could tell us a little, pick one of the songs from the show that you're particularly proud of and tell us how that came to be a part of the show. Well, uh... Jerry Bach and I had a, a way of working that I've never worked this way with anybody else. When we knew what the source material was, we would go into our respective studios. I would kind of try and dream up lyrics. He would go to his studio, and he would start working on musical numbers. And when he had anywhere from eight to a dozen of them, he would record them on the piano in his studio, and he'd send me the tape. And each musical number was prefaced with a little speech saying, I see this for Passionella, I see this for Adam, I see this for Eve, I don't know what the heck this one is, but I like it. And I would listen very carefully, and invariably, one or two, or maybe more if I was lucky, one or two of the selections on the tape would jibe with ideas I had. 
Well, one when we were working on the apple tree, one of the tapes he sent me, he said, I think this would be for Passionella when she changes from the slovenly drab uh, chimney sweep into the glamorous Passionella. And he played this wonderful jazz waltz. And I got so excited by it, I couldn't wait to set a lyric to it. And uh, when it was orchestrated, uh, Eddie Sauter did an, an astonishing orchestration. And Barbara Harris, who's on the recording, did it uh, ex- in an extraordinary way. I, I was delighted to find that there's a DVD. I think it's called Lost Treasures of Broadway. And on the outside, there's a list of the people who are on it. But it turns out that the list is incomplete. I bought it not knowing that Barbara's on there doing uh, gorgeous. And now Kristen does it in that same extraordinary way. And I wish that I had been at the concert where Audrey McDonald sang it, because I'm sure that was extraordinary. From the original cast album, here is Barbara Harris and Gorgeous. The lyrics of Sheldon Harnack, the music of Jerry Bach from The Apple Tree, Gorgeous, with Barbara Harris. Whenever we talk to writers, composers, there's always the question of, of how did you get to Broadway? And it's interesting to see that you had really begun to get great acclaim in that great scene in the 1950s of reviews and cabarets. Can you tell us a little about working in in those kind of venues on those kinds of shows? Well, I my background, uh, my theater background, such as it was, was working on the student review at Northwestern University. Uh, that was called the WAMU Show, short for Women's Athletic Association Men's Union. And they were very lavish shows. They were uh, so lavish that the uh, major critics from all the Chicago papers came to see them. And as I'm sure you know, uh, Northwestern was a, uh, was an extraordinary incubator for talent. A lot of people came out of that uh, that school. When I was there, uh, Paul Lind was there, Charlotte Ray was there. We had a lot of people. Um, so I went to Northwestern to study violin, but also to see if I could contribute songs to that show. I'd, I had seen it uh, before I went there. And the first year I was there, I contributed one song. I was pretty much fresh out of the armed services. So I wrote a song, and I was lucky enough to have Charlotte Ray as a performer. It worked very well. And the next, so that was uh, quite an impetus to do more. And the next year I did four songs, and the year after that I did six. And my last year I wrote half the show, including some sketches. And then at the last show, uh, there was a name, many of the younger people don't know this name, but I'm sure you'll know it. One of our Chicago celebrities, Dave Garraway, mm-hmm. was there. And I was a big fan of his, turning on my radio at 12 o'clock and snuggling up to it and listening to him say, Hi, Tiger. You know. <laughs> so he was there with his staff. And uh, he came backstage, and all of us connected with the show met him. And he was, he was very flattering about my work. And I said, well, is there any possibility that you could use somebody like me on your staff? And he said, we are moving to New York. And he said, if you have any dreams of writing for the theater, I would move to New York. At that time, if you were in the musical theater, there was very little outlet for it in Chicago. That scene has changed considerably now. And if I were growing up in Chicago now, I might not have made the decision to come to New York. But I did. What, what, what year would this have been, roughly? This was 1950. 1950. I came in 1950. And Charlotte had come before I did. So that Charlotte uh, was one of my uh, networking uh, people. My brother was also here, and he had he was in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. He was in the chorus of that show when I came. They introduced me to people. And Charlotte... Uh, through a friend, had invited Yip, the lyricist Yip Harburg down to see her show at the Village Vanguard. Charlotte was using a song of mine, and Charlotte knew that my idol at that time of my life was Yip Harburg, and he's still one of my idols. So she invited me down, and I went down, and luckily Yip heard the song and loved it. So I asked, uh, he said, why don't you come over and play your stuff for me? And and I did. I don't play piano, but I got a pianist, Charlotte's pianist. We went over. Uh, unfortunately, most of it was college material, and he recognized that. Um, he broke my heart. He said, Mr. Harnick, he said, I think you're very gifted, and I think you'll be a first-rate lyricist in maybe six to eight years. Mm. And I'm thinking, how do I survive? <laughs> then, But then he gave me the best advice I had ever had. He said, 
in my experience, there are more capable theater composers than there are theater lyricists. So you can do yourself a service. You can expedite your career by working with other people besides yourself. And I took that very seriously. So the first person I met that I worked with was a composer named David Baker. And as a matter of fact, I have just re, re, rewritten, that's a long story, I won't go into it, but rewritten a flop that I did with David in 1960. It was called Smiling the Boy Fell Dead. Now has a, a new title. It's a, a Horatio Alger spoof. It, the new title is Fair-Haired Boy or The ABCs of Success. And we're having a reading of it in New Jersey this January. Anyway, um, I worked with David, and we wrote some review songs because I had uh, entree to reviews. But in the back of my mind was I wanted to write a book show. I, that's what I really wanted to do. But before we move off of your review material and get to your book shows, we want to take an opportunity to play because I don't think people are as familiar with your review material. It's harder to find. We wanted to play one that, that got a life that many people didn't even realize it was yours, namely the Mary Minuet. Can you just tell us quickly about that? Yeah. I, I was at home reading the newspaper one night, and the news, very much like today, <laughs> the news was just dreadful. And I would turn a page and read another article and go, oi. And just uh, at one point, I started laughing. And I thought, hmm, there might be a song in this punctuated with laughter. And so I began to write a song about these terrible things that were happening. As it happens, I was still playing the violin in those days. And I was playing a lot of chamber music. So that the sound of a Haydn minuet was in my head. Uh, and so the music came out as a kind of classic minuet, along with these uh, horrific things I was describing. And I was punctuating, punctuating these ideas with ha, 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 ha. And I thought, that doesn't work so well. And then I changed that to a whistle. Um, I played it for uh, John Murray Anderson, who loved it, and it was in his show, John Murray Anderson's Almanac, in 1952 or 53, I don't remember, sung by Orson Bean. And he had an approach to it which was so effective because he just, uh, the song is about these catastrophes, but he said his attitude was that he was walking through a meadow on a sunny day picking flowers. And so he just played opposite to what the song was about. The song was very successful, had a number of recordings, uh, but uh, it, I'm, I was happy with the recordings. I was not happy with the fact that almost everybody who recorded it chose some of their own catastrophes or changed lyrics to suit themselves. I didn't want to sue anybody, but uh, that that's what happened. Or they would change notes, you know. And most famously, many people believed it was a song by the musical satirist Tom Lehrer. That's right. I, uh, I had a letter from Tom. I hadn't met him at that time. He was concertizing in Australia. And surprisingly, in the mail came a letter from him with a program uh, from of the concert that he was doing saying, Dear Sheldon, if I may call you that, you know, people think I wrote this song, and I could have passed it off as mine, but I want you to know that I gave you credit, so here's the program. <laughs> so, with a little divergence from our usual Broadway fare, we're going to take a listen to the Merry Minuet by the Kingston Trio. In the late 1950s, the Kingston Trio was probably the hottest folk music group around. So how did it feel to you to hear that song being played on radio stations all over, hearing your material by the Kingston Trio? Uh, it was a mixed feeling. 90% of me loved it. 10% uh, of me thought, oh, I wish they had done it as I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did they change? Some I the, think there were notes changed and harmonies changed. I think basically the lyrics were the same. They, they, they kept the same catastrophes. Yes, different notes. <laughs> they did, yes. But I think the man who changed them, Harry Belafonte recorded it, uh -huh. and a lot of what he was saying had to do with the Deep South. Uh, okay. Well, we veered off of your, your path out of uh, reviews and into writing a book musical. So, so tell us how the first book musical came to be. Okay. It's, uh, by the way, one of the reasons that I had to get out of writing review material is that as television... Uh, 
came in and more and more households owned television sets, there were a lot of television reviews, and they could do reviews faster and make, keep them topical. You know, when you plan a stage review, you have to plan six months ahead, so you can't really write topical material or a lot of it. Uh, and so reviews were disappearing, and with it, my livelihood. But when I was working with David Baker, I had gone to an off-Broadway, uh, off-off-Broadway review, and there were sketches in it by a writer named Ira Wallach, and I loved them. And I was trying to put together a review of my own, so I wrote to Ira Wallach, and I, I said, "Can we meet?" And we did, and I told him what I was trying to do, and he gave me some sketches, and I loved his work, and he loved what David Baker and I were doing, and he said, "You know, I would love to do a spoof on the Horatio Alger stories." So we thought, let's. And we did. We wrote it. Uh, and a wonderful thing happened for us. Not so wonderful to another writer named Michael Brown. Michael, you may possibly know, he wrote a song in New Faces of 1952, You Can't Chop Your Papa Up in Massachusetts. It's about, a far cry from New York. <laughs> <laughs> right, yes. The Lizzie Borden story. Right, exactly. Anyway, Michael had written a musical which was supposed to be done in Dallas. And uh, then Michael developed one of those enervating conditions where he just was had no energy. I've forgotten which of the conditions it was, but he couldn't work. And so, and I'm blocking on the name of the lady, very famous lady who ran the theater down there. Um, and he told her about our project, which was not entirely finished. So she wrote to me and said, quick, send me your script. So I, I sent a script as quickly as I could, and she called me and said, by a coincidence, I usually do straight plays, but I have a cast that they've all done musicals, and they fit your script. Finish it. We'll do it. So we wrote it. We finished it as quickly as we could, and in true Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer fashion, David Baker and I finished the last song or two on the airplane going down to Dallas. And we did the show down there. It was very successful. Um, I wish I could remember the name of the lady who did it. She was a Tennessee Williams character all on her own. Um, then we brought it back to New York, and two stage managers wanted to produce it. And unfortunately, we listened to them because they said, well, you've got to change this, you've got to change that. And we, had tur we turned it into something entirely different. And uh, I don't know that there's time on this broadcast to, to go into the details of some of the problems we had when we did it off-Broadway, but it, it didn't run. Uh, recently, last year, I looked at the four scripts I had. Both David Baker and Ira Wallach are no longer with us. I looked at my four scripts, and they, they each had wonderful material that wasn't in the other scripts. So I made a new script out of it, using the best of each, trying to use everything I've learned over the last 40, 50 years. I showed it to my wife, and she said, now it's charming. So we're going to see what happens. And, and what, what show was that? This was, uh, originally it was called Smiling the Boy Fell Dead, and it's the one that's now called Fair-Haired Boy. Oh, okay. But in terms of book musicals, it looks like 1958 for Broadway was a, a quite a year, the early part of the year for you, in that it appears that you had two book musicals almost simultaneously on Broadway for a short period of time, The Body Beautiful and Portofino. Well, I didn't write Portofino. Uh, the Body Beautiful... This was a, a extraordinary. I've used that word a number of times, but this truly was extraordinary. On the basis of the lyrics for Smiling the Boy Fell Dead, I now had written a book show. Mm -hmm. Even though it was unsuccessful off-Broadway, uh, and as a matter of fact, it didn't get done off-Broadway until 1961, but I had a show that I could now show people. It was done in Texas in 1954, and it was a wonderful piece of audition material. Uh, then... Jerry Bach had written a show, Mr. Wonderful, and his collaborator was Larry Holof Center. What the problems were, I do not know to this day, but at the end, the show was successful, but their partnership broke up, and Jerry was looking for a new lyricist. His publisher, a man named Tommy Volando, called me on the strength of my review material, mostly, and uh, put me together with Jerry, and the extraordinary thing is... We had never written anything together, and yet Tommy got us the assignment of doing a Broadway show. And that's extraordinary. Uh, a man named Richard Colmar, uh, and he had a partner. He had an idea to do a musical about boxing. 
And that was discouraging to me because I have almost no interest in boxing. But when somebody says, here's your chance to do a book musical, you don't say no. Mm -hmm. So I said yes. I did all my research. But research sometimes is a poor substitute for passion. And we wrote the show, and it was as well-crafted as we could. But for whatever reasons, it ran about five or six weeks. Uh, The opening night, we were at a table in Sardi's. There had been a, a, an opening night party. And it was depressing because the, as the reviews came out, we knew that it was not going to be a success. But we were sitting there, and all of a sudden, our set designer, our set designers, the Eckerts, Bill and Jean Eckert, came over to the table where I was sitting and Jerry Bach and his wife were sitting. And they said, we'd like you to meet Harold Prince. So Harold came over. He said... Uh, I loved your work. He said, I cannot say that I liked the show, but I loved your work, and I hope one day we'll work together. And that was wonderfully encouraging. And a year later, we did. And a little show called Fiorello. Yes. Actually, the, uh, he did call Jerry Bach. Uh, the problem with that was uh, Hal and his partner at that time, Bobby Griffith, they didn't hire a lyricist because they figured they were going to get a book writer who might want to do his own lyrics. And that, at first, that turned out to be the case. They went to a number of book writers who all said they wanted to do lyrics, and none of them did either book or lyrics that satisfied Griffith and Prince. Then they came to Jerome Weidman, and he too said, I want to do my own lyrics. And Jerry Bach was telling me what was going on, and he said, well, they have hired Jerry Weidman to do the book, but he said, they gave me his first lyric. And he said, it's not a lyric, it's a short novel. He said, it's, <laughs> it's as long as Beowulf. And he said, they're not going to hire him. And sure enough, the next thing I know, I got a call from Harold Prince. And he said, uh, Bobby Griffith and I want uh, you and Jerry Bach to write three song, four songs on speculation. Will you do that? I said, happily. We were not the only writers they'd gone to. Our director was George Abbott, and as you know, Abbott loved to work with young people. So they had approached three or four young teams and given them the same, same assignment, do songs on spec. Jerry and I did four songs on spec, and they liked them, and they hired us. They didn't like all four, but they liked enough of them. Well, it's a pretty good thing that they hired you and Jerry because the show would go on to win the Tony Award as Best Musical in 1960 and also the Pulitzer Prize for Pulitzer. Drama. Pulitzer. <laughs> I was at a Pulitzer gathering where some uh, descendant of Joseph Pulitzer was there, and he said, everybody says it's Pulitzer, and it's not. It's like, pull it, sir. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> I've remembered that. Well, uh, Fiorello, a, a wonderful story about the mayor of New York, Fiorello LaGuardia, the airport named after him. One of the re- I was told that one of the reasons that I was hired uh, over and above the quality of the of the songs that Jerry Bach and I had had written on spec, they wanted somebody who was not a New Yorker. Uh-huh. They felt if they hired a New Yorker, it was going to be too inside, too parochial, and somebody from Chicago like me would only know the high points of uh, LaGuardia's career. For instance, living in Chicago, I had heard about this colorful character, LaGuardia, who went to fires, uh, wearing a fireman's hat, who conducted the symphony orchestra, who uh, read the comics over the uh, the radio during a newspaper strike. I knew about those things. And then uh, I did research. I don't remember which of the museums, whether it was in Brooklyn. It was someplace where they had a lot of recordings of LaGuardia's speeches. And I was delighted to find that he was a phrase maker. He used colorful language. And for a lyricist, that's terrific. Mm. So it's some good material to start with. Yeah. yeah. Tenderloin came after that in 1960, and that was also about New York. It was not as successful, ultimately. No, we, we did that too quickly. Uh, because of the success of Fiorello, Griffith and Prince said, let's keep this same team together and let's go plunging forward. And they had the rights to this novel. But we didn't study it carefully enough. And we made the mistake of featuring the crusading minister in it. He was a minister who was attempting to stamp out vice. 
And consequently, the most interesting and enjoyable scenes were the scenes that had to do with vice. They were in the so-called tenderloin. And the scenes that were okay, but not nearly as interesting, were the ones about the minister and the good people. And who wants to go to a Broadway show about a minister, anyhow? Right. Right. (laughs) Good people are not as interesting as bad people. But but your your work, yours and Jerry's work, was well-received. The music was well-received. It was. More more trouble with the book than with the music, Yes, as I understand it. Yeah. 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 It's interesting that you say that you and Jerry were essentially put together. It was a matchmaker situation. And and you spoke earlier about the fact that you did your work in separate studios, that that you weren't sitting in a room together and he was coming up with a melody and you were figuring out how to set it. Was that always the pattern for you? That it was it was Yeah. It, it amazes me that Candor and Ev, for instance, worked in the same room together. Hmm. And uh Johnny would would write some music and and they would talk about it and Fred would write we couldn't work that way. Uh, Jerry would do his work. I would do mine. What always happened, though, was when I had the lyric, then we would get together in his studio, and then we would woodshed it. We would go over and over the songs. I would learn the song and sing it with Jerry, because it isn't. it wasn't until I heard the song coming out of my mouth to the music that I knew whether the song was right, whether the lyrics would sing properly. But how, where did it come from first? Was it that he would have a melody and you would set lyric to it? Did you go back and forth? You came up with a lyric and then you'd send it over to him and he'd figure out how well, to set it? Uh, as I, said, I think I mentioned the fact that he used to send me these tapes. Yeah, so that's really, so it was the music came first. That the music came first uh, when we started. It was the easiest way to get going because the music gave me the form. I didn't have to worry about the form. That was inherent in the music. Uh, when we worked, there would always come a moment where I thought, in this case, I don't want to be constrained by the music. I want to be free to write a first chorus. Maybe it's a comedy song. I know in the second chorus, the meters will change, and then I'll have to go reconcile the second chorus with the first chorus. Then if there's a third chorus, I'll have to reconcile all of them. I'll keep shifting. I don't want to be handcuffed by the music. And so I would write the lyrics first, and I was delighted to find that Jerry Bach is one of the rare composers who is skillful enough to set lyrics as well as he writes music without lyrics. He can do either and do it superbly. Now tell me, how did you, the two of you come up with, or who came up with, She Loves Me? Well, that was the idea of a, a producer named Larry Kasha, whose brother is Al Kasha, a very famous songwriter. Larry loved the old Lubitsch film, The Shop Around the Corner. And um, he got in touch with Jerry and me, and I loved the film too, so we were very excited about uh, making that into a musical. Um, Larry said, what do you think as a book writer of a man named Joe Masteroff? And both Jerry and I had seen a play of... uh, of Joe's off-Broadway that starred Julie Harris. I can't remember the name of the play. It was a lovely play. And we said, he's a great choice. He had never done a musical, but we met with him, and we said, Joe, absorb the film. And the film was based on a Hungarian play that had never been done in this country with a very unromantic name. I think the translation was pharmacy or something (laughs) like that. But it was the kind of pharmacy that sold perfume and in uh, Budapest. Anyway, we told Joe, we said, write a short play about an hour. Leave room for the fact that when, when we add songs and dance, it's going to expand. So Joe did. He absorbed the film. He absorbed uh, the play. And I use that word absorbed advisedly because then, as far as I know, he didn't even bother consulting them. He knew what they were, and then he wrote his own play. And uh, he gave it to us. And we told him, if you have ideas for songs, put them down. We know that they'll be wrong, but uh, (laughs) once in a while, as a matter of fact, he had lovely ideas for songs. So the problem with that show, from our standpoint, was that it it was so emotional that it suggested songs all over the place. And we wrote much too much music. When we went for our pre Broadway tour, I think my memory. And now that I'm saying this, I think it must be a false memory. It can't be true. But my memory is that we cut 40 minutes of music. Mm. We had that much music. Mm. And we were just drowning the audience in music. So, And we, we didn't use music wisely in the sense that Andrew Lloyd Webber, of course, will write something which is wall-to-wall music. But it uses 
a few themes and uses them over and over again. In our show, every song was a new theme. And in that sense, there were just too many themes. So uh, we loved the show. Barbara Cook was just a dream to work with. So was Jack Cassidy, who uh, is still, as far as I'm concerned, irreplaceable. Uh, it was a terrific company. Hal Prince it was uh, Hal did a beautiful directorial job. We got lovely notices, and we expected good. We're set for two, three years. But within about six months, business began to fall off. The handwriting was on the wall, and it closed after about nine months. And we had many postmortems. We could not figure out what it was about the show that wasn't working. So the show closed. We were heartsick, and it wasn't for about a year until we had another production. I think it was at the Bucks County Playhouse. And we had a letter from the cast saying, we have no idea why this show didn't work on Broadway. We, we love it. Our audiences love it. And we wanted you to know that. And then we began to get letters like this from other companies that did the show. It became a kind of a cult show, and uh, which was nice, but it would have been nicer if it was in the mainstream. And it entered the mainstream about 13 years ago when the roundabout did a revival of it and the reviews were love letters so that uh, right after that produ uh, producing organizations all over the United States produced it I think we had about 120 productions the, the following year and ever since then it's been in the mainstream well why don't we play one of the songs from the show which one are you most proud of Oh, I like so many of them I like she, uh, the title song title She song. Loves Me because there are things in it that reflect my own feelings about uh, my feelings toward the opposite sex. For instance, there's one line, my teeth ache from the urge right. to touch her. Right. Um, and that's when I, so quite often when I see a pretty girl, that's what happens. <laughs> I feel this tingling in the back of my, my uh, mouth. Another lyricist I know heard that line. He said, what kind of a lyric is that? You know, my leg hurts because I want to make love to her. My knee hurts. Anyway, it, the song really reflected how I felt. It's a very simple song. I found a nice device in the second chorus, which was to end a sentence and then start the next sentence with the last word, something like that. It was a, a device I fell into, and I was very happy with it. So the, the whole song has a joyous air that, that uh, I find irresistible. The title song from She Loves Me, there's a popular version of that by a well-known singer. I won't mention his first name or his last name, but it's a swinging version. He gets it exactly wrong. You must cringe when you hear that. He sings the lyric as, she loves me, but she doesn't know it. How could she when she doesn't show it? Just exactly backwards. <laughs> Those things bother me. Uh, yeah. And why didn't somebody in the control room say, uh, buddy, oops, uh, buddy, why don't you redo that again? <laughs> well, it, it happens. I once... <laughs> Uh, Sarah Vaughn, I think it was the, the old Dave Garraway show in Chicago, he was saying, oh, Sarah's, it was either Sarah or Ella Fitzgerald, saying she's so great, she did this in one take. And I listened, she got the lyric wrong. Right, right. It was a and, Gershwin song. Yeah. Well, you mentioned before taking, uh, when we were talking about the apple tree, taking three short stories and turning them into one show. You did kind of the same thing with Fiddler on the Roof, the stories of Shalom Aleichem, and you turned that into a big hit Broadway musical that ran almost forever. That's an interesting observation because it is based on, I think, uh, I think altogether there are about seven, maybe eight disparate stories. And they're truly disparate. They're not a connected narrative. But um, somebody had sent me a book. Um, I'm blocking on the title, but it was a full-length novel. It was by Shalom Aleichem, and it was about a traveling Yiddish theatrical troupe touring Eastern Europe. And I loved it. I gave it to Jerry Bach. He loved it. We gave it to Joe Stein. We thought he'd be the right book writer. He read it, and he said, it's too big. It's just sprawling. It covers about 80 years. It would have a cast of 400. We can't do this. But he said, since we love this author, let's look for more uh, work by Shalom Aleichem. So we looked, and uh, it was not easy to find at that time. A lot of the stuff was out of print. And by the way, that was one of the nice spin-offs from the success of Fiddler. These stories came back into print. We found volumes that had these stories in them, and we were just so taken with their humor and their emotion and the people, the, the portrayal of the people. They were so colorful and moving. We thought, there's a musical here. Uh, we also discovered to our 
dismay that there was a play at the, I think it was the Carnegie Theater, it was downstairs at Carnegie Hall, by a writer named Arnold Pearl. He had taken three of the stories and dramatized them, and there was an, I think it was called Tevye's Daughters. So we finally worked out an arrangement with him uh, where anytime you see a, a, a poster under the title, you will see by special arrangement with Arnold Pearl. It was a financial arrangement. But we had the rights to do a musical. And we decided to use three of the stories. At first, we were thinking of using four, but three, it turned out, was going to be ample and uh, probably make for a pretty long show at that. And it was Joe Stein's difficult job to take these stories and combine them. What Arnold Pearl had done, it was a, his show was a show in three acts, and each act was about a different daughter. And any daughter was only in one act. So there was no relationships. What Joe did, he said, no, let's keep every daughter alive, every suitor alive throughout the show. We'll, we'll, and that's the way he approached it. Uh, Joe doesn't get nearly enough credit either for the dialogue he invented. I remember one of the critics said, well, Joe Stein had such an easy job. All he had to do was to take those wonderful pieces of dialogue out of Shalom Aleichem. Shalom Aleichem's dialogue does not translate to the stage. Joe had to invent it. I think there's maybe two lines of Shalom Aleichem's. But he, what he wrote was so characteristic of... Uh, it sounded like Shalom Aleichem. He, Joe did a wonderful job. Mm. Well, one of the great songs of all time on Broadway is Tradition, the one that opens the show. And the purpose of an opening number is really to set the stage for what's going to happen, tell the audience what they're about to see. How did you write that song? Well, uh... Our director was Jerome Robbins, and Robbins knew better than anybody that once you go into rehearsal, it's a toboggan slide. You get on the top, and the next day you open. So he said, we're going to have meetings six months before we go into rehearsal, and we had meetings every week, every other week. And he kept asking the same question, what is this show about? And we would say, well, it's about this dairy man with these marriageable daughters. And he said, no, 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 that's not what gives these songs their, what gives this show its power. And so we kept exploring it. And then one day he said, what is this show about? And one of us said, you know what this show is about? It's about the changing of a way of life. It's about the dissolution of tradition. And Robin's eyes lit up and he said, ah, if that's what it's about, then that's what's got to be in every scene, and that's the way we're going to open the show. The audience has to be shown some of these traditions that are going to change. And he, he said, and I know, right there, he said, I know how to open and show, close the show. I'm going to use it with one of the oldest folk movements, the circle. I'll use that at the beginning, and at the end, I'll bring all my people out, make the circle, and then the circle will disintegrate. And we had a glimpse of this genius mind of Jerry Robbins at work. We actually didn't write the song, put the song together. The music came first, by the way, even though it's a very complicated number. The music came first. And late in the rehearsal process, when we really knew what the show was about, Robbins said, okay, today we're going to stage, we're going to put the number together. So we all gathered in the room, Joe Stein, Jerry Bach, and myself, the pianist, the, the cast, and he would... Like It was like watching a sculptor work, and he would start to put it together, and then he would say to Joe Stein, Joe, I need a line here. Give me a line here. And within about three hours, we had this magnificent opening number. We were just, just boggled. Wow. As we know, you had more than a magnificent opening number. You had one of the great musicals of the American stage. And I asked you earlier about you know saying that you could spend all your time going around and seeing revivals of your shows, but as as Fiddler really conquered the world, you could have gone to other countries. But, of course, the key thing, one of the key things that had to change was your lyrics were putting, being put into other languages. What was it like to see the show and... You certainly knew what was being sung, or you hope you knew what was being sung, in all of these different places, all of these different cultures. <laughs> it was very strange. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Japan, when they did it in Japanese, we listened and we thought we knew what they were singing, but laughs would be in places where we didn't expect them. And where we did expect laughter, there was no laughter. So we weren't quite sure what was being said. When it was done in Israel... Joe Stein went over there, 
And the author, the translator, very proudly said to him, Mr. Stein, you're going to love what I did. I've got 50 new laughs in here. And Joe, in horror, called his agent and said, get me a translation of that script. I have to see this immediately. I want to know what this man has done. Usually, it was just kind of fun. Uh, For instance, in Denmark... Whoever did the translation, and I I seem to remember that he did all the translations there, it was so silken, it sounded like it had been written in Danish. You wouldn't have known that it had been written in English. Whereas in Finland, I'm not sure what the problem is with the language, but it sounds like you can't say things in a few syllables. You have to use a lot of syllables. So, for instance, in a song like uh, Sunrise, Sunset, it would sound like and so forth. There are so many syllables, and yet the, this, the the show I don't think was more successful anywhere in Europe than it was in Finland, of all places. There well, were four fit, touring companies. Fiddler on the Roof was about a poor Jewish family. The Rothschilds was about a very rich Jewish family. How did that show come about? That show came about. Uh, how did that show come about? The producer, I'm blocking on the producer's name, but it was the producer's idea. And uh, uh, we, both Jerry Bach and I, as it happens, had read the book by Fred Morton about the Rothschilds and loved it. As a matter of fact, the first time we were sent the script, it was too soon after Fiddler. And we thought, no, this is another uh, Jewish show. We don't want to do it. And I don't remember who the initial book writer was, but the producer... Uh, Hilly Elkins, that's who it was, Hillard Elkins, and he had a, a partner. Um, they they had gotten a new book writer, a man named Sherman Yellen, and this now it was several years since Fiddler had opened, and they sent us the new book, which was so poetic and so theatrical, Jerry and I were quite taken with it. Also, it was miles away, we thought, from uh, Fiddler. So we did it. And we were blasted for trying to, as one of the critics said, trying to make lightning strike twice in the same place by doing a Jewish show. And uh, the show had a nice run. It ran for about 14 months. But the best thing was that about three years ago, there was a revival at a tiny Jewish theater, which no longer exists. The director was a friend of mine, Lonnie Price. And I said, Lonnie, you can't do this. You need too many people. The cast is too large. And he said, no, I have a way to do it. When the five Rothschild brothers are not on stage, they're going to be other people. (laughs) So he did it. He did it with a cast of about 15. It was astonishing. And it was so successful that they transferred it to the Circle in the Square uh, downtown. And I asked Lonnie, I said, so are you going to restage it now, now that you have a larger space? He said, yes, I'm going to ask all the actors to take longer strides. <laughs> <laughs> and the, but the, the best thing was, when it opened, the reviewers, many of them said, I remember reviewing this years ago, and I was wrong. I compared it to Fiddler. It's nothing like Fiddler. This is its own animal. It's, it's nothing like Fiddler. We felt vindicated. We've covered a lot of ground from uh, shows like... Uh, Fiorello and Tenderloin, She Loves Me, Fiddler, The Apple Tree. I should reiterate that The Apple Tree will be opening on December 14th at Studio 54, starting previews November 28th, and running in New Jersey at uh, Paper Mill Playhouse, A Wonderful Life. And on that note, a wonderful career for you, Sheldon Harnick, and thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you for asking such good questions. <laughs> Thanks, Sheldon. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>